This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Independence Day Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. If I say somebody is a Benedict Arnold, you know what I mean. I've just called somebody a traitor, but... Other than the fact that he was involved in the Revolutionary War, most people can't tell you that much about who he was, why he turned traitor, and exactly what it was he did. So let's fix that right now. Stephen Brumwell is the historian who wrote the prize-winning Turncoat, Benedict Arnold and the Crisis of American Liberty. Stephen, good to talk with you. Likewise, Gil. So let's get some background on Arnold before any of this happens. Who was he? I know he was born in Connecticut, so he was born, it wasn't the United States yet, but he was born in North America. That's true, yeah. Benedict Arnold was, was born in Norwich in Connecticut in back in 1741. And uh, his teenage years, really, his, his upbringing coincided with a time when England and her, and her American colonies had never really been closer together because they were waging war against their old traditional enemy, France. This is the so-called French and Indian War. And we're fairly certain that uh, Benedict Arnold spent a spell in his local militia when the French came down from Canada in 1757. So he grew up in this era when uh, France really was the, the, the great traditional enemy. And after the war, he basically uh, was set up as a merchant. He started out as a shopkeeper. This was in New Haven in Connecticut. But he uh, pretty swiftly swapped to the more rather more adventurous life of a, of a merchant seaman, uh, a sea captain and trader. And in that period, he was plying all the way across the Atlantic to the Caribbean, even to Amsterdam, where I live now. And uh, also at the same time, or as part of his trading ventures, he was bringing horses down from Canada, often in very, very tough winter conditions. So he'd had a pretty interesting lifestyle by his early 20s. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but I, I can't resist 
noting this, that as with George Washington, he originally fought the common enemy, as you point out, of the English and the Americans, the French. During the Revolutionary War, of course, Lafayette and the French come to the side of the Continental Army. How did, though some people just, you know, welcome that, uh, how did Benedict Arnold react to fighting on the same side as the French? Well, initially, there's no indication that, say, in 1778, when the French formally came into the war, that he had any problems. And of course, Lafayette had come into the war earlier as a, as a volunteer, like uh, several foreign officers had done. There's no indication that Arnold had any real gripe about French volunteers at that stage. But we do know that later on, there's strong indications that he resented the French alliance and he felt that it kind of went against uh, the traditional interests of his countrymen. Early on during the Revolutionary War, and as you point out, he jumped in with both feet, one of the first people to join the revolutionary cause. But early on, we start to see some personality problems or maybe problems with how the army was run because he was complaining that he never really got the credit for his military victories. Yeah, that's certainly very, very true. And I think Arnold did have a very strong case in claiming he wasn't getting the credit. Because if you look at his actual record from really the get go, within days of Lexington and Concord, he had basically joined the army besieging the British in Boston and volunteered his services. That May of 1775, he was with Ethan Allen when the fortress of Ticonderoga in upstate New York was taken from the British. And this was kind of a vital uh, achievement because the guns from uh, Ticonderoga would be used to winkle the British out of Boston by George Washington. And then Arnold... Not long after having achieved that, Arnold is put in command of an expedition against Quebec, which goes 270 miles through the wilderness of Maine, despite appalling conditions, desertion, cold, hunger, disease. He manages to get the core of his command to its objective, and he leads his men in an assault on Quebec on the very last day of 1775, in which he's wounded in the leg. And for that, Congress promotes him to, to brigadier. Now. In 1776, I'd say that uh, Arnold's contribution was even more important because when he was put in command of the Patriot Flotilla on Lake Champlain, he basically delayed a British invasion of the colonies from the north because of his resistance, because he actually built a fleet. The British had to build a fleet of their own to win supremacy of the lake. And although Ivan... Uh, Arnold, I should say, was uh, defeated at Falkor Island. The mere fact that he fought was enough to delay British operations. And if the British advance from Canada had rolled on from the north as it was supposed to, then George Washington, who'd been badly defeated around New York by General William Howe and forced back into uh, Pennsylvania, would have been caught in a kind of a pincer movement. And I think that would have been the end of the revolution. There would have been no Trenton, no Princeton. So Arnold also, by this stage, he'd been promoted to uh, major general. But the problem was his seniority in the list of major generals meant that he was lower down the list than others who he felt had achieved far less. And uh, this was still the case in the autumn and summer and autumn of 77, 1777, I should say, when Arnold was instrumental in winning uh, the battles 
that led to the surrender of John Burgoyne at Saratoga. It was Arnold's aggressive style of combat leadership which really decided both of those encounters. And that, ironically, is which is an event which brought the French into the war as allies of the American patriots. So I think when Arnold was complaining about not getting a recognition he felt he deserved, I think he had a pretty good strong case to present. Well, Arnold's story is filled with that word irony, because even though he is remembered only as a traitor now, some of those very bold and uh, strategic attacks that you just mentioned were the reasons, as you said, the revolution lasted long enough for an eventual American victory. I mean, without Arnold, the, the British may well have and probably would have won. So it's a tremendous irony. He is remembered pretty much only for turning traitor at the end. Yes, it, that's that's very true, Gil. I mean, I, I uh, that was one of the aspects that really attracted me to telling his story in the first place. Why was it that someone who had achieved so much and had, you know, this fantastically high reputation as a, a, a champion of the Patriot cause, why would he change sides and then fight against the very cause for which he had fought so effectively? You know, there's... As a strange thing with Arnold and his bravery and his aggressiveness, after he's trapped under his fallen horse and continues the fight, even the British press, and this is before he turns traitor, even the British press is going, gee, this is quite a guy. Yeah, the British, right from the very beginning, had recognized Arnold as an unusually effective and brave leader. And this was something they always acknowledged. In fact, they always referred to Arnold's intrepidity. This is the word they use for him. He's someone who's intrepid, he's brave. And this goes right back to that expedition through the main wilderness I mentioned earlier. In the wake of that, the British have already earmarked him as one of their most formidable opponents. So, uh, and once Arnold starts to have problems with Congress through his lack of promotion, and then once Arnold who's now crippled as a result of his wound at Saratoga, is appointed as commandant of Philadelphia. He runs into problems there with the, the radicals who are running uh, Philadelphia and uh, basically gets the impression that they've got it in for him. There's almost a kind of a vendetta against him. And this is also something that the British pick up on. They wonder why Arnold is being victimised by... Uh, these politicians when he's actually done so much for the cause. Well, well, before we get to more specifics about that, I get the feeling that Arnold was respected as a general, but wasn't much liked. I think there's an element to that. But the problem is that uh, Arnold had this, I think you, one way of describing Arnold is that he always thought he was right. He uses this term again and again, uh, conscious of my own rectitude, you know, the rectitude of my reasoning. He believes whatever anyone else thinks, Arnold is right in his own mind. So that kind of justifies any action that he takes. And he's also someone, following on from that, he's someone who's considered arrogant. There's more to tell you about Benedict Arnold, which Stephen Brumwell will do in our next segment here on the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio.
Welcome back to the Independence Day Special here on CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we're talking with Stephen Brumwell, the historian who wrote the prize-winning Turncoat, Benedict Arnold and the Crisis of American Liberty. We've got to remember by now, this is 1779, it's not 1775. Arnold, as I've mentioned before, was one of the first to join up when he fought, he felt that the cause was just. And the grievances imposed by the British, who'd been, you know, imposing taxation, legislation that had riled up the colonists, he felt that once those grievances had been addressed, then the situation would be different. But by 1779, things had had changed. The French had entered the war. And we know from what we spoke about earlier that, that Arnold, as a young man, had actually fought the French. And this is something which he later said was a reason for him changing his allegiance. And we also know that uh, Arnold felt that the the men who were now in Congress were very different from the people who had been in Congress in 1775. He felt that the American patriot cause had lost its way. He felt that the war had become increasingly stalemated and pointless and was effectively a civil war within what had been you know, the British Empire, if you like, with the, the, the American colonies being very much part of a, a bigger organization. So Benedict Arnold had scored all of these victories against the British. As we pointed out near the beginning, without Benedict Arnold's victories, the United States may well have lost the revolution. The British get word Benedict Arnold wants to change sides. They must have been suspicious that this might, you know, might have been a trap or something. This seems too good to be true. How did they check this out? Yeah, that's very much the fly in the ointment. From the word go, the British were incredulous. And of course, the only way to really establish that they actually are dealing with the famous Benedict Arnold is to arrange a face-to-face meeting with him. And this is where the treason really comes unstuck. because. John Andre, who by now is a major, he is the man as Clinton's head of intelligence who's been handling the correspondence from the outset. So as the treason approaches its climax in the summer of 1780, by which time West Point in the Hudson Valley has been identified as the key objective around which the, the treason will turn, the only way is decided, the only way to to actually establish Arnold is who he says he is, is to actually send Andre up the Hudson River to meet him. And this is where things start to come apart, because this is an extremely risky operation. Major Andre is given very strict instructions. He must not shed his military uniform. He must not accept incriminating documents. He must not go behind enemy lines. So he goes on board a a British warship called HMS Vulture, which is a great name for a, a treasonable operation. He's sent aboard the Vulture, but despite the orders from Henry, Henry Clinton, he goes ashore and meets Arnold in Haverstraw Bay. Then subsequently he goes behind American lines. Then when it transpires that he can't go back to New York via the Vulture because uh, an American colonel had completely off his own bat, decided to open fire on the vulture, which had to drop down the river to Sing Sing. Because of this, Arnold, sorry, excuse me, Andre, had to return to New York by land, which meant he was basically persuaded to 
switches into civilian costume, Arnold completely unnecessarily gave Andre a great wad of incriminating documents about the fortifications of West Point, which he stashed inside his stockings, inside his boot. So Andre then proceeds to return to New York overland and he's almost home and dry when he's intercepted by a group of militiamen who uh, are suspicious. And instead of presenting the pass from Arnold, which w- would have got him clear, basically asked the militiamen which party they belonged to, assuming they were loyalists and supporters of the British. He basically admitted who he was, at which point they searched him, found the documents, and basically, as far as Andre was concerned, the game was up. But even at this late stage in the game, because the officer to whom Andre was taken basically couldn't believe the evidence before his eyes and that the famous Arnold really was a traitor, to cover himself, he sent Arnold notice that uh, Andre, who was acting under the, the, the name John Anderson, had been intercepted. And at the same time, he sent the documents to George Washington, who was coming home back to his base from a conference with the French in Connecticut. So you have these two different messengers streaking off at pretty much the same time. And it's dubious as to who's going to reach their objective first. George Washington, who had supported Benedict Arnold, despite all of the other people who were jealous of him, just didn't like him personally or whatever, Washington had to be shocked. Yeah, the way it panned out. I mean, this is really a stranger than fiction. On the morning of the 25th of September, Arnold was at his headquarters just down the Hudson from, from West Point. He was sitting down to breakfast with outriders from Washington's column, Washington's party, basically, who would, Washington himself was due to arrive within the hour. Whilst he's sitting down to breakfast, Arnold receives the message tipping him off that Andre has been captured. So he immediately realizes that everything is, is, is up. So giving his wife a quick peck on the cheek, he mounts up his horse, rides down to the river where his ferrymen are waiting and has himself rode down to past Stony Point to HMS Vulture, from whence he's taken safely to New York. Not long after, Washington arrives, goes over to West Point, hoping to meet Arnold but he doesn't find him there, returns back across the Hudson to Arnold's headquarters, confused and slightly bewildered. Now, not long afterwards, the second messenger arrives with the the package of documents signed by Arnold, which had been found on John Anderson, basically giving away all the details of West Point and other military information. At this stage, Washington suddenly realizes, oh my God, If we can't trust Arnold, who can we trust? So this is a real bombshell. And he sends off uh, two officers, including Alexander Hamilton, to try and catch up with Arnold. But of course, by this stage, Arnold's long gone. But they do still have Andre, who will now face the consequences of being a spy. Right. Andre is hanged. Um, because, and, and, and if he was a military officer in battle, he would have just been kept as a prisoner, but because he's a spy, he is executed, even though even some of the people who, some of the Continental Army people who were with him at, at the time had wished he wasn't because they especially liked him. Um, after, after all this is over, let's do the, I guess the final irony here, 
Benedict Arnold goes on to England and and lives well, and his wife has this you know amazing pension uh, from the king. George Washington, of course, wins the war, becomes the first American president. John Andre, the messenger guy, aka John Anderson, he's executed. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very dramatic story, and of course, the execution of Andre is really one of the dramatic high points because, as you mentioned. Because Andre was such a debonair, handsome young gentleman, and he faced his his fate with with such nobility that he couldn't help but win over his captors. People like Alexander Hamilton, he was exactly the kind of gentleman they aspired to be. So when Andre is hanged, and he'd at least hoped to have been shot like an officer, but he was ended up being hanged like a, a common felon, like a spy. When he was hanged, the the crowd, many in the crowd were crying. Of course, they'd much rather have been stringing up Benedict Arnold. But of course, Benedict Arnold could only really be hanged or burned in effigy. He wasn't there to face retribution. So, yeah, it's an incredible story in many respects. And after the execution of Andre, there's quite a wave of resentment within the British army against Arnold for having got away whilst Andre had suffered in his place. But to some degree, Andre only has himself to blame for that, because basically he got an offer. He got to get out of jail free card. Listen, if you help us get Benedict Arnold, uh, you know, you can go. And he refuses. Yes. But of course, this whole idea of swapping Andre for Arnold, there's no way that Andre as a gentleman would have agreed to that. And there's no way that the Sir Henry Clinton, the British commander in chief, would have delivered up Arnold, because if you do that, what kind of message does that give to anyone else who might potentially come over to the British side? So I think really that was a bit of a gambit, but it gives an indication of just how desperate that Washington and his commanders were to get hold of Arnold. And if they had got a hold of Arnold, it's very clear from Washington's instructions later that he would have been executed pretty much on the spot without a trial. There is so much more to this story than most people know, and we've only kind of skimmed it. Uh, Stephen Brumwell's book is well worth your time. It's an amazing story with all these ins and outs. Turncoat, Benedict Arnold and the Crisis of American Liberty. Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much, Gil, also, and thank you for, the, for your questions. It was a real pleasure to in engage with them. You're listening to the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. We not only celebrate our independence as a nation now, but into the summer, we celebrate our independence from the kitchen as we head outdoors and fire up the grill. Simply Recipes is making the fourth with its first ever digital issue called the Backyard Bash. And Emma Christensen of Simply Recipes joins us now. And Emma, since it's a digital issue, we'll do a cut and paste job. In this case, cut the food and paste it. And by that, what, what, what do I mean? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you so much for having me this morning. Um, I am very excited to be here and to talk to you about barbecuing and grilling and all things backyard batch related. Um, yes, and we think, we at Simply Recipes think that the secret to grilling this summer to the easiest, fastest, most delicious grilling are pastes. Um, sure, brines, marinades, uh, dry rubs, all that stuff is, is fantastic, but pastes are just so flavorful, so easy, and they're going to give you just a backyard win this summer. 
And if your kids are listening right now, we're not talking school paste here, even though a lot of third graders do love to eat that. <laughs> uh, what are we talking about specifically? What makes a paste? We are talking about um, a simple mix of oil, dried spices or seasonings, condiments like even like ketchup, mustard, gochujang, just real flavorful condiments and fresh aromatics like herbs, anything coming from your garden. And it's super easy. If it's, if it's a small amount of paste that you're making, you can just mix it together in a small bowl or you can just blitz it real quick in a blender. You want it to be thick and spreadable and relatively sticky so that it sticks right to the food that you're grilling. Um, you don't want it to be loose or runny. And you're really going for bold, aggressive flavor here. And when we're talking bold, aggressive flavor, what kind of flavors are we talking about? What kind of spices? What, what, what are we using here? Oh, boy. The sky's the limit here. You like there's such a such a grand world that you can explore. Um, so really, raid your pantry for those whole or ground spices that you've had sitting around for a while: chili peppers, cumin, coriander, fennel, mustard seed, all that good stuff. Um, you could even go into uh, like paprika, garlic or onion powder, curry powder. Like sky, like I said, sky's the limit. Um, and then in terms of condiments. Um, uh, again, go into your fridge and just raid your fridge for what you've got in there. Um, mustard, adobo sauce, gochujang, harissa, curry paste, tamarind, all that good stuff. Just anything that is bold, bright, flavorful is going to do you good. Now, when we're talking about bold, you know, what I sometimes get afraid of here is something that is so strong. I'm tasting, you know, the paste, I'm tasting the condiments or whatever, and not whatever the protein is. It's like, wow, this could be on anything. There's, there's the paste and then there's something chewy. I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> but it's, it, the paste tastes good. Well, obviously, you can tailor this to your your specific tastes. You are the king or queen of the kitchen. Like you, just go for it. Um, I would taste it um, straight out of the blender or the bowl after you've mixed it, and you do want it to taste relatively aggressive because it is. It's you know you're going to slather it onto your your pork chop, your chicken, whatever it is that you're about to start grilling, and the flavor is going to be a little more muted once it comes off the grill. Um, so you want it to taste aggressive at first and then just understand that coming off the grill, it's going to, you're going to end up with a nice balance there. Got it. And that point you made about it being sticky really bears repeating because especially when you're grilling, you don't want something that's just going to run off the food and then, you know, down in the charcoal or down in the flame or whatever. You need something that's going to, going to hang to that food. Yeah, exactly. And really the, I, like Again, you can you can choose your own adventure here with how you particular how you want to do it. Um, but I like to uh, slather on that paste twice, once right before it goes on the grill, and then you get a nice char on it. Get your get your meat cooking or your vegetables cooking. You can use this for vegetables too, by the way. And then slather on the paste again toward the end of cooking. And that second time around, the paste has even more stuff to cling to because that initial layer of paste has become charred and caramelized, and ooh, oh, so delicious. Ah, okay. Now, there's some specific recipes, because it just makes sense of being simply recipes and all, that are different. Um, for instance, I'm ready to go out there with hot dogs, and simply recipes, it certainly allows that, but it also has the grilled carrot dog which is what? <laughs> well, it's a carrot, it is, obviously. It is exactly, it's grill, yeah. <laughs> right. It's exactly what it sounds like. Why is it? Why is this good? <laughs> well, um, this is fantastic for any vegetarians, any veggie lovers that you've got um, coming to your backyard bash, um, as well as kids. Like if you've got a kid who loves carrots, like this is going to be right up their alley. Um, and 
this is a two-step process for the carrot dogs. One, you want to boil them briefly beforehand, and that makes sure that they're cooked through, and then put them on the grill, slather them with a, we, we recommend a mustard barbecue uh, paste for this one. Um, put it on the grill, grill it up, and you got yourself a carrot dog. It's, uh, it's pretty delicious. You got to try it to believe it, though. <laughs> the main thing that we've learned here for grilling is we're talking about uh, pastes, which are, hey, let's face it, they're eat they're just easier than uh brining or marinades they're quick they're fast i mean it's the kind of thing that if somebody announces in the morning they're coming over for lunch or dinner that night you can put together real fast slather on there and and there you go so it's a really good thing to have that and then we've got these other recipes and if we go to what simplyrecipes.com we can find a ton more oh absolutely we will be running delicious grilling recipes all summer long come visit us and find out more okay and again there's this special digital issue that you can look at that has the things that we just talked about and so much more. So excellent. Emma Christensen from Simply Recipes. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This is the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. This is the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. The 4th of July is the nation's birthday, and at one time it was celebrated very differently at the White House, before assassinations and terrorism made the open-door policy of yore something that security could no longer allow. Matt Costello is vice president of the David M. Rubenstein National Center for White House History. He's their senior historian, and it's good to have you with us. How are you, Matt? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Let's go back in time, though. Let's go back to the 1800s. Very different time for so many reasons. And let's talk about how Independence Day was marked at the White House. And as I kind of implied in that introduction, security was a very different thing in those days. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there really was more of an open door policy uh, for anybody who wanted to uh, see the White House, access the White House. And, uh, and even though you know, John Adams was the first president to live there. Uh, he moves in in November 1800. The first president to host a 4th of July celebration is Thomas Jefferson. Uh, so he does it in 1801 after he defeats Adams in the contentious election of 1800. And starting with that day, uh, Jefferson starts a custom where there is a 4th of July reception and celebration really on the grounds of the White House and inside the White House itself. And, uh, and this tradition continues. It's pretty consistent uh, until about 1876. Well, let's talk about Jefferson opening the doors. And we say opening the doors. It's not just to the privileged few. It's, it's pretty much, you know, it's 4th of July. Come on in, see the president, uh, ask him questions or whatever. I mean, what kind of people were visiting the White House in 1801? Well, yeah, I mean, Washington, D.C. was a very different city as well. Uh, you know, it wasn't the, the nation's capital or the booming metropo metropolis that we think of today. Um, but, you know, Jefferson opened the doors and really it was sort of anyone who was around or in the hinterlands uh, was welcome to come in. There's one recollection uh, from one of these earlier events where uh, an observer notes that there were military officers, there were citizens, uh, there were Native American chiefs, diplomats, uh, and really ordinary citizens. Uh, so all kinds of people who had gathered at the White House uh, in 1801, and they participated in a, in a handshake with the president. Uh, there were races, there were parades, uh, there was food and drink. And then also, uh, you know, we start to see the beginning of uh, fireworks and illuminations and that becoming, uh, you know, one of the cornerstones of a 4th of July celebration in Washington, D.C. 
Now, besides diplomats and military officers, you just mentioned that Native American chiefs were coming in too. And was this just a thing where the polite thing to do is just shake hands with the president, say, how do you do, Mr. President? Or could you go, oh, and by the way, I'd like my land back. I mean, how did that go? Well, I mean, the the recollection doesn't really tell us a whole lot about it, but we also know that Jefferson was fascinated with Native American cultures. Uh, In fact, when he started the Lewis and Clark expedition after the Louisiana Purchase, uh, Meriwether Lewis and, and William Clark were sending back Native American artifacts and objects that different peoples gave to them along the way. And then they displayed these in the entrance hall of the White House. So even beyond the 4th of July, if people visited the White House, it's very similar to if you go to Monticello today, uh, Jefferson had something very similar there where he had Native American artifacts on display uh, so that people could uh, see some of these wonders of the West. Now, of course, 4th of July at the White House has a very, I guess, mixers, you know, probably celebrations at the White House, but also somber, although I don't know when the news reached them. When John Quincy Adams was the president in 1826, July 4th was that famous day when former President John, John Adams and former President Thomas Jefferson both passed away, not just on the 4th of July, but the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Did they get that news on the 4th, or did that take a while? I mean, did that that change the the celebration that day? Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, Adams and Jefferson, I mentioned it earlier, uh, you know, Jefferson is Adams' vice president when he defeats him in the election of 1800. There are, there's, you know, obviously some bitter feelings about that. Uh, Adams doesn't stick around for Jefferson's inauguration. And only in retirement do these two uh, statesmen sort of re-begin their friendship. Uh, They write more than 150 letters to each other in the retirement years. And, uh, you know, did did they serendipitously time it? I don't think so. They were both uh, quite old and in declining health. Uh, People wouldn't have found out on the day uh, of July 4th that both men were ill, though, you know, they would have been invited to participate in a variety of July 4th uh, events and they would have declined those because they were in poor health. So, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily a secret, but uh, the news of their demise doesn't actually start reaching around the country till later in July. Uh, so only then do people realize that they had celebrated the fourth, the 50th anniversary. But at the same time, they had lost really these these two iconic figures who played such an you know, central part uh, in the American story. So what kind of food was served at, at these things? I mean, you know, we think of the 4th of July now, we think of, you know, barbecuing on the grill with hot dogs and hamburgers and things. I'm sure that probably wasn't the tradition yet. So what was served? Do we know? Sure. So so, so for some of these receptions, uh, you know, it would have been things like cakes and punch and, uh, you know, fruits and nuts and a variety of different things that really people could snack on. Uh, smaller things. Uh, but only later do you start to see sort of these really unusual, uh, really unusual dishes. The one that comes to mind that I always remember is, so uh, John Quincy Adams, by then he's a former president. He's now a Massachusetts congressman. He writes about going to a 4th of July celebration at the White House under John Tyler. And uh, and this was in 1841. He recalls eating turtle soup uh, apparently a turtle that weighed about 300 pounds uh, was given to the president uh, from the good people of Key West, Florida. And uh, they t- apparently turned that turtle into soup and John Quincy Adams had some 
Uh, and the fact that he mentioned it, it, it was probably a really unusual circumstance, but also it was probably delicious. So uh, you see these instances where it's not just sort of the standard fare of cakes and, uh, you know, fruit and nuts and desserts, uh, but sometimes they do have, you know, more filling, uh, more filling dishes served as well. Now, a tragic thing comes out of the 4th of July celebration in 1850 when Zachary Taylor was president. So Zachary Taylor, uh, he had arrived to the presidency. He was considered the, the hero of the Mexican-American War. He's nicknamed Old Rough and Ready. And, uh, and, and so it, it, was a, it was a celebratory occasion because two years earlier, they had laid the cornerstone for the Washington Monument uh, in 1848. And so uh, by creating that ongoing monument, that became also because of you know, the large space. It was a good place to have these 4th of July celebrations. It was within view of the White House. Um, and you know, it sort of reaffirms Americans' commitment to Washington and the, the ideals the country was founded on. And so uh, in July 1850, Zachary Taylor participates in the events of the 4th of July celebration at the Washington Monument. And uh, we're not exactly sure how he contracted it, but uh, he gets he gets sick, uh, you know, from a gastrointestinal illness. Uh, it could be cholera. Uh, it could be a different bacterial infection. Uh, but whatever it was, he ends up dying five days later. He dies on July 9th. And uh, and so there there are, we mentioned Adams and, and Jefferson dying on the 4th. Uh, James Monroe also dies on July 4th. Zachary Taylor, uh, you know, falls ill shortly after the fourth, uh, and one could certainly say that, who knows, had he not participated in that Fourth of July celebration, um, maybe he would have lived to to see his entire term. But uh, that wasn't that wasn't how it was meant to be. Some more fascinating history of the fourth at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue is coming up with Matt Costello here on the Independence Day special from CBS News. Welcome back. I'm Gil Gross. This is the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. And we're looking back at the 4th of July as it used to be celebrated at the White House with historian Matt Costello. Uh, let's talk about one more, which is Abraham Lincoln, 1864, his, you know, essentially last 4th of, of July. And he went to a picnic that, um, I've never heard anything about, but which really demonstrates his feelings and his thoughts toward the African-American community in, at least in Washington, D.C. at the time. Yeah. So, you know, as you would expect, um, most presidents uh, did not have a particularly close or welcoming relationship with uh, African-Americans or black communities. And, you know, Lincoln is really sort of the first president to really outwardly and openly change that narrative. And uh, I think most people think about his actions as commander in chief during the civil war and, you know, his decisions uh, that eventually lead to the destruction of slavery uh, and then his pushing for the amendment to end slavery through Congress. Uh, but there are also these instances where president Lincoln is, is welcoming uh, African-American visitors to the white house. And in 1864, during that 4th of July in particular, uh, there was a picnic uh, for local African-American schools and, uh, and black churches. Uh, and this actually took place on the south end of the White House grounds uh, near what was then uh, the War Department, 
And uh, what made that so unusual is, you know, to give African-Americans uh, such a public space to have their picnic, uh, to, uh, you know, help uh, raise awareness and funds for their schools and their communities and their churches. Uh, and uh, they also had, uh, you know, they were citing that they recited the Declaration of Independence. I mean, that's also sort of a time-honored tradition of the 4th of July, uh, having a speaker uh, read the Declaration of Independence. And so it's, it's, uh, it's sort of, you know, when you think about all of that, when you put in the context of uh, the United States is, is fighting this war in 1864, and by then uh, the Emancipation Proclamation has already been issued, Lincoln has made it clear that the death of slavery will be part of this war to preserve the Union. And, and sort of add that to the mix of him and uh, the welcoming of African-Americans on the White House grounds. I mean, this was pretty groundbreaking uh, in many regards. I think there's a there's a big distinction to be made between, uh, you know, somebody who believes that slavery is wrong and should be abolished and someone who believes that, you know, in that context, that white Americans and black Americans could be treated equally and the same and could coexist. And uh, I think a lot of people assume that well, everybody falls into the same camp, but actually there were quite a few people that believed that slavery should be abolished, but they were uncertain about what African-American citizenship would look like and whether or not white society uh, and black society could fully integrate. Matt Costello is vice president of the David M. Rubenstein National Center for White House History, their senior historian at the National Center for the White House. And Matt, thank you so much for taking us back in time at the White House on the 4th of July. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull, assisted by Hunter Sense. I'm Bill Gross. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts.